0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in Genesis today, a series called A New Nation. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verses 1 to 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, Going Home.
1: I had wanted to entitle this message, Jacob and Joseph Go Home. That's because the beginning of Genesis 50, which chronicles the events surrounding the death of Jacob and eventually his burial in Canaan, accompanied by a great company of mourners, well, that's for Joseph, the only time in his life that he is allowed to go back to Canaan, to the promised land. See, Joseph had been about 17 years old when his brothers sold him to slavery. He left Canaan bound in chains, a man whose hope was seemingly over. Now he returns to Canaan as the second most powerful ruler in the region Entering into the land accompanied by some of the greatest nobility from the land of Egypt. See, I've often wondered what that moment must have felt like for Joseph. It had been so long ago. Was his mind flooded with memories? I'm sure it was. Was he processing how he had left the land? I'm I'm sure he did. Did he feel a sense of personal struggle knowing that he belonged to this land and not to the land of Egypt? Well, we're never told, but he might have. See, the fact is that often in this life, we notice that life is not as it should be. And if you're an idealist, that's especially hard on you. But it's not supposed to be this way, we say. Yeah, but please understand that this is the very definition of what it means to live in a fallen world. The fall means that nothing is the way it's supposed to be. There isn't supposed to be any hatred. Instead, love is supposed to rule. There isn't supposed to be any injustice. But there's plenty of it. There isn't supposed to be death, but when sin entered the world, death came with it, along with people selling others into slavery and along with famine and every other sad thing that both Joseph and we experienced throughout our lives. See, Joseph's story and ours is, you know, if you've experienced the salvation of Jesus, well, it's not the story that everything turns out according to our standards of of what's ideal. Joseph's story is the story of redemption about a God who provides mercy and grace along with an eternal promise found in Jesus in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. So let me get back to my theme, going home. Joseph gets to go home, but only for a short period of time. Jacob, his father, is also going home, but he's going back in a coffin. Father and son go home together, and oh yeah, it's, it's not ideal, but it's an amazing story of grace. Very well. Let's begin now by reading the first six verses of our text, Genesis 50, verses 1 to 6. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. And Jacob, we have been told, has lain back down in his bed, the text says he drew up his feet into the bed, and then the old man has now breathed his last. He's, he's gone. I notice that our text tells only of Joseph's mourning. It never mentions the weeping of the 11 brothers. And look, I'm sure they wept as well. But I think Moses, who wrote this story, paid special attention to the weeping of Joseph. Not only because he was the leader, but because back in Genesis 46, verse 4, Jacob was told by God that it would be his son Joseph who would close his eyes. And so Joseph, who seems to have remained physically closest to his father while that incident occurred where he is blessing his 12 sons, he now kisses his departed father and he weeps bitterly. You know, weeping at death is natural. It's a universal human experience. And if I might interject here, I, I have a reaction to the kind of funeral service that has become so common in our day. We say we're not having a funeral with long faces anymore. We're celebrating life. Look, it's not wrong to laugh or to remember joyously those moments that we relish when a loved one passes. But what has become of us when we're no longer able to weep? Has our love become so weak as well? Are we no longer able to express or experience a profound sense of loss? Is public mourning no longer to be an acceptable part of expressing our outrage over the great tragedy of death. Might we remember that when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus, he wept, and this from a man who not only had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he actually did it. But the profound sense of grief that Lazarus' two sisters expressed, along with the grief of the Jews who were there, deeply impacted our Lord. It's necessary for us to grieve a death. It's necessary to say, it's not how it's supposed to be. We were created to live forever. Instead, we live under the curse of the fall, and now we grieve. But at this time, we might also wonder about what happens next. You know, Joseph commands his servants who are here. He calls the physicians to embalm his fathers. And and it's really fascinating that it's the physicians who do this we have no evidence that physicians were the ones who embalmed in egypt but you know it might have been that physicians who attended this matter because they gained such valuable knowledge about human physiology were there at the practice of embalming you know but for our matter that thing that might cause us to wonder is that the practice of embalming had religious connotations in egypt it it had to do with preparing a person for the journey of the afterlife and to make sure that they were comfortable and that they held no grudges with the living. But of course, we're never told that this is why Joseph ordered his father to be embalmed. You know, in ancient Egypt, the normal and everyday people were not embalmed, only the nobility and Pharaoh were. But I think this also misses the point. See, Joseph knew that there would be a long process of bringing the body of his father back to the promised land, and in the heat of that region the body would quickly begin to decompose and smell very badly. And there's no doubt that Joseph used all the resources at his disposal to ensure that his father had a dignified burial. And so with mummification requiring 40 days, and also overall there being a 70-day period of mourning, it's amazing. Historians tell us that the time period for mourning for a dead pharaoh Normally was seventy two days, and so the honor that's afforded to Joseph's father is but two days less than a full king of the land. It tells us again how far Joseph had risen in Egypt. I suspect that Pharaoh himself mandated this period of national sorrow for the father of the man who had saved his land from starvation. But it's only at the end of the morning that Joseph is ready to go to Pharaoh. And if you're reading this text carefully, you might have noticed that Joseph doesn't speak to Pharaoh directly. Rather, he speaks to Pharaoh's household about burying his father, not in Egypt, but in Canaan. See, this matter of burying his father outside of Egypt, I think it was a touchy matter, given the amount of public attention that was already paid to this event and the expense that Pharaoh must have borne for all these plans. Well, some suggest that Joseph may not have gone directly to Pharaoh, because he still had mourning clothes on. You might remember the story of Mordecai, how he could only come to the king's gate and no further because he was wearing clothes that were torn in grief. Uh, Whatever, this matter is touchy. Will Pharaoh think that this request is a lack of thankfulness or loyalty to Egypt? But Joseph is quite clear. My father made me swear an oath, bury me in the cave I had hewed out for myself in Canaan. Now, in making the request, Joseph deliberately leaves out the part in which his father had said, don't bury me in Egypt. See, Joseph deliberately leaves that out because that part of the request would have been misunderstood and have been offensive. For Jacob, that request had meant, don't bury me away from the promise of God given through Abraham. Well, Pharaoh wouldn't have understood that. You know, the other part of the request that leaves me wondering is whether or not Pharaoh had ever entertained the notion that not only was Jacob leaving Egypt, but Joseph might be leaving as well. Did he want out? Again, in an ideal world, that's where Joseph should have gone, along with a family and along with what should have by now been their considerable riches. Hadn't Joseph served his time and, and shouldn't he now be freed to pursue whatever life God had promised him? Well, you'd think so. But as I've said when I began, this is not a story about idealism. This is a story of the fall. It's a story of redemption in an imperfect world where we never get what we want, but we do get a great deal of grace and mercy. And so Jacob and Joseph go home. One man is dead. The other will only go for a short and temporary stay. When the text says that Pharaoh's servants went along, along with the elders of his household, were were led to believe that there was a great company of the nobility of Egypt that joined him in a massive funeral march from Egypt to the Promised Land. Jacob and Joseph were going home. What grace!
0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, these difficult times, we're so grateful for those who stand with us, the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. You've ensured that in the midst of distressing days, trustworthy, relevant, and accessible Bible teaching continues to be offered every day. We're so grateful for your continued prayers and partnership. The month of June is one of the more critical financial months of the year for the ministries of Back to the Bible. And we know there are many because of the present difficult times who are unable to give please know we understand. But if you are able, your gift to help meet this important fiscal year-end goal by June 30th would be so appreciated. And remember, the ministry has been blessed this month to receive a $95,000 match pledge. So for every dollar you give, that gift is doubled up to $95,000. To offer a gift this month, Call us, would you, at 1-800-663-2425, or give securely online at backtothebible.ca. Let's continue to
1: read our text. I'm reading Genesis 50, 7-14. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, "...and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Attad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days." When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Attad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham had bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. There are three groups of people who left Egypt. You know, the first grouping are the high-ranking officials. They're the politicians. They're the members of the bureaucracy of Egypt. The second grouping are now given a new name. They used to be called the family of Jacob, but now they're called the household of Joseph. Joseph's leadership is now unquestioned. The only ones left behind are the children and the livestock, and you have to wonder about the children who was taking care of them. You know, some have suggested that the household of Joseph would only have included the males. I guess that's possible. But the text says it's the entire household, and so at least from my understanding, the women went as well. It is possible that the children were cared for by the many women in Egypt who also cared for the royal family. The third grouping to go is the military. We're told of chariots and horsemen. It's hard not to read this and think how differently the chariots and horsemen of Egypt would have seemed in the time of Moses. There they, they would have also been the military men who, under orders, were called to prevent Israel from leaving Egypt. Of course, they were eventually drowned in the Red Sea. But that time is not now. The military are here to protect Joseph's household and to ensure that no band of raiders would encounter them. And after all, No one could risk having the cream of Egypt's leadership all wiped out at once. And then notice that the entire company come to the threshing floor of Etad. Now, we don't know where that is. Wherever it was then, it's long since disappeared. But we do notice that they stopped there for a seven-day period of mourning. And our passage says they made grievous lamentation there. You see, they no doubt would have fasted. And no doubt there would have been other activities in keeping with the tradition of mourners. You know, at first glance, it looks strange. You'd have expected that the mourning would have been made and the actual grave site where he was to be buried. But the only thing that happens there, we're told, when they approach the burial grave is they bury him. There may have been a ceremony at that grave site, but whatever was done there is not even close to what was done at the threshing floor of Etad. It seems strange. But hang on, it gets even stranger. Our text says that wherever Etad was, our text does mention it's beyond the Jordan. Now for those of us who are not accustomed to looking at maps, you will no doubt just want to skip over that little detail and just keep on reading. But if you do, you're going to miss something significant. You see, under normal circumstances, you would have expected that the whole entourage were to head from Egypt. They were to go straight north to the region of Hebron. It's a straight journey. But given that Etad is said to be beyond the Jordan, well, we take that to mean that it's on the east side of the Jordan River. See, that means that the funeral company has gone far east of their designation. Indeed, they would have traveled to the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and Hebron would have been far inland on the western side of the Dead Sea. And then from there, they continued north, and by now, they're far to the east and far to the north of where they want to go. I mean, what in the world are they doing there? Well, Genesis never tells us, but it's important to remember that the account we're reading is written by Moses. And we do know that this is the very route after 40 years of wilderness wanderings that Moses actually led the people of Israel, you know, 400 years after this event. See, that's the story that's related to us in Numbers 20 and beyond. See, Moses and the people are going north on the eastern side of the Promised Land. And they come to the territory of Edom, which has a very famous roadway. It's called the King's Highway. And Moses sends a message to the Edomites and he asks for permission to travel on that highway going north all the way through to their territory. And you're going to remember that Moses gave the Edomites guarantees they wouldn't harm anything that belonged to the Edomites, they were their brothers. In response, of course, the king of Edom comes out in force and he tells the Israelites that, you know, we're ready for war if you attempt to take the king's highway. So in consequence, Israel has to go even further east around the land of Edom until they come to the land of the Moabites, which is north of Edom and a land which is directly on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. That's where they encounter, you'll remember, the king of the Moabites who hires the prophet Balaam to curse them. Well, eventually, they continue to travel north until they come to the kingdoms of Og and Bashan, and the Israelites utterly defeat those two kings and take their territory. So there they are, still on the eastern side, which is now directly opposite the Jordan, probably in the general vicinity of what was then the city of Atad, where Joseph had his procession stop and lament for his father for seven days. And again, we've got to ask, since Joseph, who has obviously been leading You know, this entire company, why does he lead them so far from their destination on the far side of the Jordan, far to the north and to the east of where they're going? And why so many years later did Moses take that same trek as he was leading the people out to the promised land? I know that this text doesn't tell us, but I think this matter, that Moses went the very same way, is hardly a coincidence. I think that Joseph had a strategy. As he was going to bury his father, he was also mapping out the way for the people of Israel later to enter the promised land. It seems likely that that place of lamentation was probably the best place that Joseph could see that the Israelites would later cross to enter the promised land. It's like he's telling his family and he's leaving a record that you could one day move along this very direction as you go from Egypt to the promised land. Of course, I've said, this isn't perfect. You know, I think if you had asked Joseph, he surely would have wanted to be Moses, the man who led the people of God to the promised land. Joseph wasn't going to have that privilege. Joseph, by the sovereign hand of God, was simply playing the role that God had given him to play. And that role was simply to lay down the first plans of hope and a plan for the future. See, in his trilogy, Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. R. Tolkien records a conversation between Frodo and Gandalf during a very difficult time. Frodo says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf responds, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given to us. Joseph could have said something very much like that. After weeping and after he has taken his father to the promised land in a coffin, he finally, finally arrives at the cave. It's the burial site of Abraham and Sarah and of Isaac and Rebekah, and now it's the burial site of Jacob and Leah. Verse 14 simply says, after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt. You know His one opportunity to go back had been all too short, and then he went back to Egypt, and that's where he lived for the remainder of his days. As far as we know, he never went back to Canaan again. Of course, God had a plan, and that plan would include Moses, and then Joshua, and then it would include King David, and finally the seed of Abraham, Jesus, the Son of God, would lead the world to know God's salvation. Joseph's role was merely a preparatory role, and all that he was doing is being faithful in his hour. His was not to decide which time was given to him. His was simply decide to remain faithful with the time that had been given to him. There's a lesson in that for all of us. It is God who determines our times and seasons. And we might complain because we're never given ideal times, but God does give us days in which if we seek him, there'll be enough mercy and there'll be enough grace and there'll be enough kindness and love. Ours will be a story not of perfection, but of redemption. You see, the death of Jesus was not ideal and yet it is the story of redemption, is it not? It provided salvation for us. So therefore, when we go through difficult times, remember this, don't look for perfection. Look for grace, look for mercy,
0: and you'll find plenty of it. John, you know, is it true to say that when things go bad, we often shake our fist at God? And perhaps that reveals something true about ourselves, our own colors. Yeah, it also
1: reveals something about the kind of faith that we have had. Um, it is said that there is, um, you know, there's the fire that's in a candle that when that wind begins to blow, it immediately blows it out. But there are the glowing embers that uh, perhaps are a part of, you know, your campfire, that when the wind blows, it actually whips them higher. So, we actually know that um, the same Um, difficulties that people go through. Uh, For some, it destroys their faith, and for some, it builds it into a roaring fire of confidence in God. Uh, One thing is clear that the difficulty, that the suffering that we go through, exposes the kind of faith that we've always had. So, that's a very important thing to remember. Let's build the kind of faith that's enduring
0: now, lest it is the kind that is easily blown out. That's the lesson. Thanks so much, John. Join us again tomorrow as we conclude our series, A New Nation, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. It's happening. If you've listened to Laugh Again in the past, now the opportunity is available to not only hear Phil, but to see him in action. This month, we make the official launch of Laugh-Again TV. Five minutes of storytelling, laughter, hope and joy all wrapped into a video message from Laugh-Again and Phil Calloway. So check out Laugh-Again TV at laughagain.ca or by going to the Laugh-Again TV channel on YouTube. A new inspirational, joy-filled program every week. If you check out Laugh-Again TV on YouTube, remember to subscribe to the channel for free and never miss another episode. Thank you for continuing to support in these challenging days. Your donations keep this unique ministry alive. To learn more, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit laughagain.ca.